Good morning, church. Uh, we're going to begin our morning scripture reading in Colossians 2, 1 through 5. It's a little bit of scripture reading from last week, but we're going to use it to establish our context. But the sermon this morning will be out of Colossians 2, 6, 1 through 15. But we're going to begin in 1 through 5. So Colossians 2, 1 through 5. The word of the Lord says this. For I want you, this is Paul speaking to the Colossians, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So far in our Colossian series, Paul is in prison and he learns of the Colossian church. A minister named Epaphras comes to him, reports to them who the Colossians are. This church, the church of Colossae, the church that um, Epaphras represents, is a congregation that Paul the Apostle did not establish, nor has he met. So he's in prison. This guy named Epaphras comes to him, reports to them. He reports to them that, that what's going on in this church. And it seems to be that some type of false teaching is coming against the church. What exactly it was, we're not sure. But just like any of other Paul's letters, we recreate the possible false teaching by examining what Paul is really emphasizing or what he's highlighting in his letters. And the key things that Paul talks about in Colossians so far is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So somehow this false teaching is undermining who Jesus is, what he's about, what he does. They have a real problem with the supremacy of Jesus and his lordship. So early in the letter, like I said, probably the most clearest statements about the divinity of Jesus Christ and probably one of the most important contributions Colossians makes to the New Testament and the Bible as a whole is the very clear and obvious picture of the glorious second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. He is God come as a man. It's a very profound and very clear way of explaining who this guy named Jesus was. And this foundational understanding of Christ being supreme, it permeates the rest of the letter. And it is this very supreme Christ that Paul was called to be an apostle or a messenger of. And last week we talked about this, how he goes from explaining who Jesus is, this uh, supreme God-man, essentially. And then he says, and I am his suffering servant. Paul was apostle. He was a chosen representative of Jesus. He suffered for his love of Christ and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. He suffered as a pattern also for all believers to eventually follow. And he suffered so that the Colossians could be certain of the things that they believed, that Christ indeed was Lord. And as we just finished our context reading, thankfully, whatever this false teaching was, Paul says, but you all, you're standing firm in the faith. The false teaching that the Colossians had been rubbing up against, they had been keen again to it. They had not let it derail them. And that brings us to today's scripture reading. Colossians 2, verse 6, 7, and 8. Continuing his thought about how they're standing firm in Christ, he says, Therefore, 
As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul, who was rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ, he now begins the heart of the letter. He's really kind of getting to the core of what's going on. And his series of commands begins to be issued. In the first command, he says, As you receive Jesus, walk in him. Remain in him. It's a positive, positive affirmation for the Colossians to continue in the truth, to daily dedicate their entire person, their entire lives to this guy named Jesus that they had trusted in, their king, their Lord. And they were faithful to do so. But the false teaching, whatever it fully was, that was coming against them, as all heresies, if they are left unchecked, if false teaching is not checked, if it's not taught against, if it's not confronted, it has the potential to shipwreck people, to destroy their faith, to crush their hearts. It does. So Paul then begins to warn them. He says in the second command, in that verse 8, he says, see to it, like your responsibility, see to it that no one takes you captive, no one enslaves you, no one comes up and binds you by the wrist. As he himself says he was a captive for Christ, he's warning them, do not be like, do not be bound by these things. Do not be deceived by these things. By, he says, philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a very serious command. It's a very serious warning. And it is one that is still true for you and I today. As we talked a lot about last week, the world is full of evil ideas vain philosophies and human traditions, human commandments, human religion, what Paul affirms, and he calls, again, I put it in quotes, but elemental spirits of the world. Your Bibles may translate this in different ways, and there's a lot of debate on exact what exactly he means by that, especially because uh, the different English Bibles will translate that phrase and word differently, but the Greek word he uses is one, it's, it's stoikion, and that word describes the idea of something as being a fundamental or an essential component. Uh, the word can be used to describe learning the letters of the alphabet. So every like your ABCs, they're the fundamentals of your language, right? They're the elements that make up how you communicate. The fundamentals, or the stoikion, can also be learning, used to be described to learn things like the musical scale. I don't know anything about music, but learning like the notes of music. You learn the elements of music, the fundamentals of music, or even things like geometrical propositions or mathematics. You learn the fundamentals, like your arithmetic. The stoikion, these fundamentals, whatever they were, is not always a bad term because even scripture refers to the fundamentals of the faith. Hebrews 5.12 uses this word to describe the elementary truths that Christians are to believe about God and his word. But in Colossians right here, it's used in a very negative sense. Paul is saying that these elements or these fundamentals, whatever these things are, like they're part of that falseness that was coming against the church. It has a negative aspect. So whatever... This false teaching was in its fullness. We can't really be for certain. But it was dealing with fundamental things of the world or of the universe. So personally, I think something was being elevated to a divine or spiritual status when clearly it wasn't. That's, it's the basic form of idolatry. 
Uh, consider this, what I'm talking about, this idea is of fundamentals of the universe. Consider the cult of Pythagoras. Y'all remember geometry? I didn't like school, but I remember geometry, but that guy that you had to learn, like the long side of the triangle, the Pythagorean theorem, I had to look this up to make sure I'm not telling you something untrue, but A squared and B squared equals C squared, like that type of guy, that dude, he had a cult following. People following this math philosopher, they, as weird as it sounds, they divinized math. And some people still do that today. They have like use divine numbers, like the divine speaks through geometric proportions and weird stuff like that. Like that's still a weird thing, but they would use math to find divine messages from God and stuff like that. Or what about astrology? It's, you know, because math is a fundamental of the universe, right? As our understanding is how we understand and figure out how nature kind of works. But what about astrology? When we look at the fundamentals of stars and all of a sudden we elevate them to some divine status, like we call the moon and the sun, and they would, people would worship these things. They would take mundane material things and they elevate them to a essential, which is just idolatry. And it can happen in many forms, shapes, and ways. So consider like the New Age shops you see around towns and all that. People will use crystals and yoga and feng shui and rearranging your apartment with plants and flowers, like the, the fundamentals to like have good life and health and wealth and all those weird things. They, they elevate things and make them divine when they shouldn't be. They make them something they are not. Idolatry is not just in the form of statues, and humans do it all the time. Even think about money. The basic thing you need in life is money, right? What happens when that becomes our all pursuit? It's a fundamental of life. So whether your Bible translated as elemental spirits or basic principles of the earth or whatever your Bible may translate it as, it's dealing with that. This false teaching seems to be saying that somehow they're taking basic concepts of reality in life and saying, without these, you cannot have a true relationship with God. You can't have true spirituality. You can't have it. And Paul and his loving fashion, was warning the Colossians to keep themselves from such nonsense, from such deception, to keep themselves in Christ. That phrase or that, those wording, in him or in Christ, saturates this portion of the letter. You're going to hear it a lot and take it to heart because it has a lot of meaning to it. And it leads us to this morning's preaching question. Why Jesus? Of all the things, of all the religions in the world, of all the systems of thought, of all the philosophies and all the ethical things and systems you hear, of all that type of stuff in this world, people telling you how to live, what you need, what to believe, all that stuff. Why Jesus? Why don't we all go down to our local New Age psychic store, have our palms read, buy crystals and herbs, and do transcendental meditation, and try to reach some type of personal nirvana or spiritual experience, you know, all those types of things. Like, why Jesus? And I think verses 9 and 10, they begin to give us our first answer of why Jesus. Let's read together. Verse 9 says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The first reason of why we stick to Jesus, why we pledge our entire lives, our absolute fidelity to him, is because he is the incarnation. For in him, Jesus, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Everything that makes God, God dwells in Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes God known. When you see Jesus, and you, when people would see Jesus, they are experiencing the Almighty. Therefore, there is not and cannot be any other source of absolute truth other than Jesus Christ himself. And Paul the Apostle is advocating here this very thing. For what higher authority can we call upon to teach us about reality than the guy who made and knows everything? As we read a couple weeks ago, Jesus is our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. He's the Lord. He's God come as a man. So really chew on that. If Jesus really is God come as a man and God is the source of all knowledge and the source of all truth, to whom else should you turn to? For the truth is in Jesus Christ. And as an illustration, my wife and I, she got me hooked on this new show called Naked and Afraid. I'm not big on uh, reality shows, but there's something something elemental about this show, right? Watching people dropped off in the middle of nowhere and just told, hey, here's a pot and here's a knife. You can make it for 60 days. Uh, Once you start seeing snakes, I'm like, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'm not all for that. But imagine if you, my dear listener, were dropped off in the middle of Africa or the Amazon or some other inhospitable place. You're part of the show. But before you were dropped off, you were able to pick a teammate. And between two options, one of them, you can pick superstar survivalist Bear Grylls, who is, if you know him as survival, he's like one of those famous guys that does those crazy out in the wilderness things. And even if you didn't know that, if he showed you his resume and explained who he was, compared to all of a sudden you had to pick the other choices, Karen, she's your office mate, and she wants to go out on the show for the first time trying at her mad survivalist skills, but you know that she can't go a day without telling you how hard her life is in all of her first world problems. Starbucks line was too long, and she had to wait on customer service too long, and so on and so on. Between those two options, you know who you would pick, and you know why, because you don't want to die. You want to survive and thrive. You want the source of, you want the guy who can tell you what's true and right and beautiful, the guy that will help you get through it. So likewise, church, when you're confronted with all the supposed spiritual truths out there in this world, why would you ever turn to the lesser things and the teachings of mere mortals? The truth is in Jesus Christ. And not only is Jesus the fullness of God, the truth, but when you trusted in him, dear Christian, and when you called him king, as Paul says in verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Some other English translations may say something along the lines of you are complete in him, something like that. But really take to heart what God is communicating in here as what is true of you and of me, if you have indeed called upon Jesus is that once you have Jesus, you are complete. And there's literally nothing else your soul needs. There's nothing. And I thought about this. How could I explain this this week? So as a comparison, I think this is kind of fair, but do you remember what it was like to be single when you didn't want to be single? Remember how your heart felt empty? Or maybe you feel that way now. 
You want to be loved. You want to be desired. You want someone to know you truthfully for who you are. I think everybody experiences something kind of like that in life. And no matter what you do, no amount of hanging out with friends, no amount of hobbies, that, that empty feeling just won't go away, that desire to be known, to be loved, to be complete. There's a famous line from a famous movie that I've never seen, but where a guy tells a girl that she completes him. Uh, this is only partially true, but I do think that the desire to be loved is the closest parallel, that desire, that ache to be wanted, to be like with somebody. You can't explain it. You just, you just know it, right? You can't explain it. But that desire, I think, that we feel is the closest comparison that God gives humans to be made complete in Jesus Christ. Um, hence the sacredness of Christian marriage, because as we know, marriage is the earthly picture and experience, God tells us in the Bible, is the closest idea that we have to having a union with Jesus. Because Jesus is married to his bride, the church, and is unified with them, he's one with them. And just as in marriage, when love is blossoming and you just you don't want to be with anybody else, you can't picture being with anybody else. I think that it's true that when you have Jesus, you don't desire the lesser things. You don't desire the fundamental things. You're not led astray. Those things mean nothing to you anymore. And Jesus supplies you with everything you need to love him and do life and have eternity with him. You are complete in Christ. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not just some things, not just some mundane spiritual thing, but like he says, all things. God has granted us everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians three, twenty-one. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, Christian. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. No worldly philosophy, nor your favorite preacher, or spiritual teacher, or guru, or whatever else you do, none of that can supply you with what you really need. A relationship with Jesus Christ. God has given you everything you need if you are in Christ and you are complete in him. So Christian, stop searching for the next thing. Stop it. Stop buying all those silly self-help books. Stop buying the nonsensical celebrity preacher books. Stop listening to people like Oprah or the political elite or stop seeking pornography or alcohol or sex or whatever, or whomever it is that you are trying to fill up on and pursue your love relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. No one can compare to Jesus Christ, who is completely God and you are complete in him. And this completion is only possible because of the next two points. And we're going to examine the first one, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, how God accomplishes our completion in Christ. It says, in him, 
Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So why Jesus? Well, again, because Jesus is completely God and we are made complete in him. And this completion to have your meaning and purpose and to be loved and all the things that make a person complete are only found in Jesus and to fully belong to him. This is possible, first off, because of what is called the circumcision of Christ. It's our second point this morning. Why Jesus? Because he circumcised our hearts. But for those not in the know, what is circumcision? It's kind of one of those weird things we normally don't talk about. It's like if you're trying to explain the Ten Commandments to a kid and you get to the adultery verse and the kid's like four or five and you're like, well, what's adultery? Well, it's having, you know, sex without a marriage. And then you have to explain what sex is to the kid. And it's like, you've got to be careful how you explain those things, right? We normally don't have Sunday school classes for children explaining what circumcision is. And we take it for granted that people know what these things are. But circumcision, simply put, is the cutting of the foreskin from the male genitals which is a really weird idea. I don't know who just who thinks that up, right? But it had a holy purpose, and that's the thing we've got to grasp. Circumcision has its roots in the Old Covenant. Before Jesus Christ died, buried, and was raised from the dead, the people of God before that time were to circumcise their male children to mark them out as God's chosen holy people. And Genesis 17.9 introduces this concept. And God said to Abraham, and if you don't know who Abraham is, he is like the first people, he's the original guy that God called out to then be the progenitor of the people of God. He's the first, essentially the first Hebrew, if you will. He's the fountainhead from where we stand here today because he obeyed God. And from him comes Jesus Christ. Abraham's a really important person to know. But Genesis 17, 9, God's talking to this guy called Abraham, and he says, As for you, Abraham... You shall keep my covenant, which is like the agreement that they have that Abraham and his descendants will be God's people. He says, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a, this is the language he uses, a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was what God chose for people to be marked out as his people. And the debate on why God chose circumcision is never ending. Of all the things God could have chose for his people to be marked out as different, as to be told that they're separate from the rest of all the pagans, I can't explain why God chose circumcision to you, and God doesn't justify to himself why. But what he does explain to us is that circumcision ultimately is a picture of what God wants to do in the hearts of his people. Later on, with Moses in Deuteronomy 36, a couple hundred years after Abraham, Moses says this fascinating, he says this, and it's a, uh, it's a weird way to use circumcision, because in the normal you're like, okay, this is something that we do to our children, but hear what Moses says about it. He goes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he's speaking of repentance, of the people of God turning from sin and coming back to their Lord if they do fall away. He says, the Lord your God, notice who's the the one doing the action here. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Fast forward thousands of years to the New Testament and the picture of circumcision, this work that God wants to do in the hearts of his people finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. Through the gospel, Jesus Christ is able to do an amazing and beautiful and wonderful thing for his people. When you, Christian, trusted in Jesus, he cut out of your heart, circumcised, if you will, the evil that had been ruling you since the moment you were conceived. The Bible makes it absolutely 100% abundantly clear that you and I are born in sin and you know it's true of you and I know it's true of me. You desire and do evil things. You lie. You cheat. You steal. You commit adultery in thought and action. You fornicate and have sex ahead of marriage. You get drunk. We do drugs. Fill in the blank. You covet and desire and get jealous for things that are not yours, so on and so on. The list of evil behaviors, what the Bible calls as sin, it goes on. You know you do evil. I know I do evil. And the problem is our hearts. This thing called sin. So God, desiring complete unity and relationship with his people, had and has to fix us, to make us complete in his son. And he did this through the death of his son, and by our spiritual union with him. Romans 6.6 6 talks about this. In fact, Romans 6 and 7 are excellent parallel teachings on some of this. I mean, Colossians is giving us like these little few sentences. Romans unpacks this whole thing a lot. But Romans 6.6 6 says, Paul talking to Christians, he goes, we Christians, we know that our old self, our old life, our old ways, was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For This is the catcher. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Our union with Christ, which we talked about last week, is this spiritual and supernatural connection that believers have with Jesus Christ through the Holy Ghost. Somehow, when God sees you, he's seeing you and Jesus like as a pair. You're never alone in God's eyes. And not just are you never not alone, but believers, because of Jesus, we have to our account, if you will, we get credited all of the riches of Jesus Christ. So think about this in a similar way. Again, marriage is that picture that God gives us. When you get married, married people combine their assets and their lives and their hearts and their minds and their bodies. When you get married... You, get, you take on the debt of your spouse, or maybe you take on their riches, whatever, right? You know, like, your two lives become one. If they own a car, you now own a car. That is why there is no me or I in marriage. It's just us, and we are one. Likewise, when you trusted in Christ, you essentially, as God puts it, you are espoused to him now. You are married to Jesus. So all the assets, all the spiritual and beautiful and wonderful things that Jesus Christ possesses are now yours. You and I bring nothing to the table with our marriage with Christ. Just our sin and our debt and our brokenness. Jesus is the one that brings all the riches. And we share in them. All of this meaning, this union with Christ, it's a really important doctrine to understand all of this means, though, is that when God interacts with believers like you and me, he deals with us as if we and Jesus are always together, hand in hand, 
and the merits of Jesus' sinless life and his vicarious death are also applied to you. Meaning that when Jesus died, you died with him because God sees your life wrapped up in the life of Jesus now. It's a really important Christian doctrine to understand. You are one with Christ. And those who have died are no longer under the curse of sin. Because the wages or the fulfillment or the earning of sin, the final result, is death. So when death is finally earned, sin has run its course and it no longer can rule over you. When a corpse is laying in a coffin, does it feel temptation anymore? Can it sin anymore? Like That sounds kind of like, well, yeah, they're dead, right? That's, that's not a thing. But that's what God is saying. Sin ultimately kills. And when you're dead, that corpse can no longer dance, no more than it can tell a lie. So, because of your spiritual union with Jesus, because of this permanent bond, the believer, you and I now have with Jesus Christ, that thing we can't see, and it's hard to explain, but it's true of you and true of me, God says that with Jesus, you also died to sin. God credits the death of Jesus to you just as much as he credits the life of Jesus to you. Therefore, sin is now cut off from your life. God considers us as one who has died just as Christ died. And this is why the Apostle Paul, through his letters, will say these big statements like, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Christian, that is true of you today, in this moment. You can say that same truth. Your life ended, in God's eyes, the day you asked Jesus to save you. And now sin no longer has power over you anymore. Your heart has been circumcised from the slavery, from the evil passions and desires that once ruled you. You now don't have to sin. You're no longer under its cruel bondage. Because now what's worse in a sense is that you choose to sin as a Christian. You're not a helpless thing anymore. Your heart now can choose to obey or to disobey God. When before, before Jesus, evil was always present with you. It's like you couldn't escape it. Even the days that you wanted to do the right thing, can you have in those moments when all of a sudden just lies come out of your mouth and you step back and you're like, why did I just do that? Why are these things over me? Why, is there, why can't I just do righteousness? It's because we're a slave to sin. But now, in Christ, we have died to sin. Your life blended with Christ's life. His death attributed to your life. And you've been set free. This is the true circumcision God had promised. And verse 12 points this out. Our Christian baptism, remember your baptism, Christian? It shows us these spiritual realities. Our old sinful life is dead and in the grave. You know, going, the power of our old life is cut off from you, demonstrated by going into the water. It's dead, it's left behind. And now we are raised from the dead and made alive just like Christ was. His death is attributed to your account and his life is now credited to your account. Demonstrated when you came up out of the water, which leads us to our third and final point, is that not only did we die with Christ, and the circumcision of Christ cut off our old life. Sin no longer has power over you anymore, but you are now made alive in Christ. Verses 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, which is Christ. So our question this morning, why Jesus? We choose Jesus because he is completely God and you are complete in him. And we are made complete in Jesus through the circumcision of the heart. Your old desires and passions have been disarmed. Your heart is now free to choose Jesus. And lastly, why Jesus is because we are made complete in him because we are made alive in him. Our third point, why Jesus is because we've been made alive in him. Not only did you die with him, you are now alive in him. Jesus' death on the cross was for actual sins, evil things you and I have done. He suffered and died as a real substitute for real sins. This might seem preaching to the choir right now, but there are many people that claim in Christ that will say that statement I just made is, is a heresy and false, that Jesus didn't really die for sins, that he just died to show us like an example of like how to be obedient to God. And there's a lot of crazy ideas, but Christian, you need to understand the atonement this thing that Jesus died for sins, what that fullness means, because there's a lot of crazy ideas out there on what Jesus really accomplished on the cross. I don't know how anybody can come to a different conclusion, but the conclusion is pretty evident in the scripture that Jesus died for actual sins that you and I have actually committed. And this was according to God's justice. Sin had to be paid for. It had to be dealt with. Because if God is good, and if God is holy, and if God is just and righteous and pure and perfect, he cannot allow evil to go unpunished. He cannot. It would be an evil thing for our good and faithful creator to let evil go without facing justice. There's no room for that. God is good, and his justice demands evil be held accountable. Hence the need for someone to take our very real place enduring God's righteous wrath for the sins you and I have committed. And Jesus Christ did just that for us. That was his purpose, to seek and save the lost, to die for sins. Like This should be Christian one-on-one, the fundamentals, if you will, of Christianity. But it's important that we get reminded of these things regularly. And now, as Jesus said before he died on the cross, he goes, it is finished. God has taken, as Paul called that, that sin debt, that record of sin debt, with its legal demands for God's divine justice, and he nailed it to the cross. God nailed your record of debt, what you owed him, the crimes you've committed, the laundry list of your worst things, and even maybe your best things, the things that you're going to be held accountable for and should be because it's evil, God's nailed it to the cross. And he signed it with the blood of his son, writing, Justice has been served. The price is paid in full. Jesus paid for your past, present, and future sins. And sin can no longer be held against you. If there's anything you hear this morning, you've got to grasp this reality, is that when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, Everything that was, you did before is gone. Everything you're going to do today has been paid for. And everything you will do has already been paid for. 
Because if, it, if sin can still be held against you, if the debt record of your sin debt can still be held against you, then Christ would have to keep suffering over and over and over again for sins. He'd have to keep being crucified. But Jesus died once and now is alive and seated far above all principalities and powers, seated, seated at the right hand of the Almighty, waiting to return to the earth to judge the living and the dead. Christ will die no more. He now lives forever. And Paul says that this final act of Christ dying for sins and ascending to the right hand of the Father, the last bit of our reading this morning says that this was a demonstration of God humiliating and depowering the powers of darkness through the resurrection. God finally demonstrated to the devil and all of his traitor demons and all those things once and for all that God has fully redeemed his people once and for all. Satan his very name, Satan, means the accuser or your adversary. He can no longer bring your sins before the Almighty. There is nothing that comes between you and God anymore. It's over with. Jesus has won the victory. And so therefore, our union with Jesus as testified in baptism not only cuts off your old self with its lusts and its passions, but we are also made alive to God just as Christ was raised from the dead. Because this is the important part. When sin is no longer held accountable, when you're no longer having sin written on your debt, where there is no more sin, there is no more death. For the wages of sin is death. So think that through. When there's no more sin, there's no more death. There's only life. Eternal life remains with God. That is the beauty of the gospel. Where there is no more sin, there's only life. And Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly to be complete in him and with him forever. So the life we now live is in Christ Jesus. So church, this is why we choose Jesus. He is completely God and you are complete in him. Therefore, as Paul began the command to the Colossians. We say it to you this morning. Walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Choose Jesus for your ultimate meaning and purpose and life are only found in him and you can be complete and if you haven't chose Jesus yet, his promises are being extended to you this morning that you too can be complete and find meaning and purpose and all those beautiful and wonderful things that your heart truly aches for. You can find that in Jesus through the forgiveness of sins. Will you say yes today? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and thank you for who you are that from before the foundation of the world you had already planned that Christ would be crucified for our sins so we could have life and be complete in him and have an unhindered relationship with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for us. Thank you that your death secured us makes us whole and complete. We no longer are going to be led to and fro like a ship tossed on the waves of the, of the ocean. We 
can be anchored in port with you. And you cut off our old self with its desires and passions. You free our heart to love you. You take care of this corruption in us that always chooses to do evil. And you provide a way for us to escape temptation. Thank you, Lord, that you cut off the evil from our heart. And then you make us alive in you. You've canceled our sin debt forever. Our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. You've dealt with them. And where there is no more sin, there is no more death. And Lord, we know that our bodies are still cursed waiting for death. But you promise us that the resurrection is real. And we will experience the fullness of life in you in the latter days when you redeem the entire universe. Give us the patience that we need to endure today and help us, Lord, in our weakness, not be led astray by false ideologies, foolish fundamental things of the universe, stupid arguments and foolish ideas, whatever they be like, Lord, keep us from these things and help us be in Christ and walk in him. And Lord, I pray that you continue to glorify Christ as we prepare our hearts to take communion. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Amen.